Hello, and welcome to Crowns and Constitutions, Episode 4, Monarchy and Administration under King Clovis and the Merovingians. In this episode, we continue our journey to the Magna Carta by taking an important pit stop in early France. Now, that may seem odd to spend much time talking about early France when the Magna Carta was an agreement reached between the King of England, King John, and his English barons in 1215, so I'm going to give you a little sneak preview. The area near northern Francia, which is the term I will use to refer to the geographical area of old Roman Gaul, for reasons that will become apparent, are going to be invaded by another group of northern Germanic tribe people known as the Normans. The Normans are going to adopt Frankish ideas, customs, and administrative practices that they will in turn bring with them and more or less impose on the English after William the Conqueror invades England in 1066. Now, the English world of 1215 is a fascinating mixture of Norman, French, and Anglo-Saxon heritage and traditions. And so to do a thorough job of giving you the historical context of Magna Carta, it is necessary to cover the historical background, not just of Anglo-Saxon England, but Frankish rule as well. But have no fear, for those of you who cannot wait to discuss the Anglo-Saxons, uh, we will spend the entire episode 5 discussing Anglo-Saxon legal traditions and administration. But first we must begin to discuss the main event for this episode, the early Franks, and our star of the show is going to be King Clovis I. But yet again, I must take one little more detour and mention St. Gregory of Tours. St. Gregory, born in 538 AD, was the author of the history of the Franks, and it is from him that we gain much of our knowledge about the early Franks. He was not a Frank himself, but was born into a Gallo-Roman family that provided aid to the Franks as they moved into Gaul from the east. In 573, he was made bishop of Tours and worked closely with the Frankish Merovingian dynasty. Gregory was a prolific writer and wrote about theology in addition to history. We owe a great debt to St. Gregory for documenting the history of the Merovingians, and this provides a perfect segue into the meat of our discussion for today. Who, might you ask, are the Merovingians? Uh, the Merovingian dynasty, as known in history, was named after a, their patriarch, Merovec. Recall in the last episode I had mentioned how the Franks made up of these were made up of these small subclans, and one of them were the Salians, which the Salic Law is named after. Well, among these Salian Franks was a tribal chief named Merovec. Now, various legends surround the origin of Merovec's dynasty, but one of the most interesting versions uh, was that his human mother was attacked or raped by a sea monster, Quinitar, while swimming in the sea, resulting in the conception of Merovec. Now, St. Gregory, of course, did not endorse this story as a historical reality, but it did provide him with the opportunity to go on a diatribe about idolatry in his History of Frank's book. But it is from Merovec and his offspring that the first powerful line of Frankish kings comes to power and is referred to as the Merovingian dynasty. 
And by the way, this theme of medieval monarchs with divine origins or divine ancestors is actually quite common throughout the old Germanic tribes, including the Anglo-Saxons. While Christians do not believe kings or emperors share in divinity, uh, this is actually what got them killed in the earlier uh, Roman times uh, with the emperors who demanded Christians worship them as deities. Um, Christians do recognize that all rightful authority comes from God, um, but uh, they do not believe the kings themselves are appointed by God. We, we will need to flesh this concept, concept out a little bit more in later episodes. But I wanted to point this out now just as another example of why so many of these German tribes could easily accept Christianity, uh, which in fact King Clovis did. Now, Merovech had a son, Kilderic, who had a son named Clovis. And Clovis was born in about the year 466 AD. Clovis succeeded his father, Kilderic, as a king of the Salian Franks in 481, and eventually came to rule an area extending from what is now the southern Netherlands to northern France. Clovis is famous for defeating the last Roman general in Gaul, before conquering rival Frankish clans and other Germanic tribes, including the Alamans, Burgundians, and the Visigoths. Essentially, it was under Clovis that the Franks were consolidated and expanded throughout what was formerly Roman Gaul. By the time of his death, Clovis's kingdom stretched from the Pyrenees to Bavaria. He even impressed the Eastern Roman Emperor so much he was named an honorary Roman consul. Clovis was also important because he married a Christian wife, Clotilde, and shortly after was converted to Christianity, as I had mentioned earlier, and thanks to Clotilde's efforts. It is no wonder today that Clotilde is recognized as a saint in the Roman Catholic Church for aiding in the conversion of what could best be said about Clovis, a hyper-pagan at the time, and somewhat more warmongering husband. It's also important to note that Clotilde was a true Catholic Christian and not an Arian. Clovis's conversion to Catholicism was in many ways a fatal blow to active Arianism. That was the heresy that denied the divinity of Jesus Christ uh, that was still lingering from centuries before when it was more influential. By the, by the time that the now-converted Christian, Clovis, died in his capital city in Paris in 509, the Franks were the most powerful Germanic kingdom in what used to be the area of Roman Gaul, and so now you can see why we rightfully call it Francia. We had discussed in episode 2 that there was a lot of intermixing of ideas, customs, and laws among the old Roman Empire and the invading Germanic tribes. This was especially true with the Roman people still remaining in Old Roman Gaul and the conquering uh, Merovingian Franks. We will refer to these holdovers from Rome as the Gallo-Romans. Gaul, before the Germanic invasions, as a province of the Roman Empire, had already been divided up into administrative districts. By the collapse of the old Western Roman Empire, these administrative districts were called civitas. We do not know a lot about how these original administrative districts were governed, but it does appear that the earliest Franks adopted this administrative system in part. 
Now, the chief administrator of the Civitas was a Comes. That's a C-O-M-E-S. And the plural form being uh, Comites. It's from this Latin root word that we get the modern English word, count. We can see this word as a, as a noble title, uh, such as Count Dracula. Uh, but we also see it in the word county, which, like Rome, uh, continues to be uh, seen as an administrative district within larger states or nations to this day. In the northern areas of the Frankish kingdom, these administrators took the title of graffio, but basically they served the same function as the comites in the south. The comites were responsible for enforcing the law within the district, not in the modern law enforcement sense so much, but simply to hear disputes brought before them and perhaps took on a military leadership role as well. He may also have collected taxes and supervised public work projects. We also see some evidence of an official that ranked higher than a, co uh, than a Comis, um, but below the king. And these men would oversee multiple civitas, basically a regional authority, and would carry the title Dukes, D-U-X, from which derives the modern English title Duke. This term for a military leader was adopted as well from the Romans, and they would also play an important leadership role in military affairs and perhaps conduct diplomatic missions for the Merovingian kings as well. Like the administrative structure, the Merovingian kings also adopted uh, Roman patterns of taxation. Uh, taxes tended to fall heavier on those who could least afford to pay, while the most powerful elites would receive tax exemptions from the king, who was always seeking to maintain loyalty by handing out these exemptions, which were really nothing more than just tax breaks. But these tax exemptions did not necessarily relieve anyone from providing services to the king. And we find these services demanded from the king mainly included military service and hospitality services. Uh, hospitality services for the king as he traveled throughout his kingdom. And actually, this could get very expensive for those whom the king called upon in the time of need. Property distribution also became a key feature of the Merovingian rule because it served as the means of rewarding loyalty. Again, and this is in addition to these tax breaks just mentioned. With property, the king would dole out estates for rewards of service while replenishing uh, lost territory by conquering new areas. At least this was the modus operandi of the Merovingian kings that managed to conquer most of the remaining Germanic tribes that had moved into Roman Gaul. So wealth was also added to the king's coffers by raiding neighbors and securing tribute from them, even if the territory itself was not overtaken by the king. But throughout this process of conquering land, distributing estates to secure loyalty, after Clovis's conversion to Christianity, he and his successors would often grant lands to the church, monasteries, and they would support the clergy financially. It was a duty the Merovingians appeared to accept and which contributed to the quick spread of Christianity throughout uh, Francia. Interestingly, as was the case before the Frankish invasions, the Catholic Church uh, had administrative districts called dioceses under the control of an individual bishop. 
um, which were created and maintained following the civitas pattern of Rome, and in many cases were actually coterminous with the civitas district. Like the civitas where uh, several could be combined together to form a, a Roman province, so too were dioceses organized into larger provinces under the control of a metropolitan bishop. And this organization still exists today in the modern Roman Catholic Church. Now, this relationship between the church and the Frankish administrative structure played not just an important role uh, in the secular world, uh, but also in the spiritual world as well. And interestingly, the church was often charged with taking care of the poor, the widows, and the orphans. And in some cases, the bishops also served as the comies for the king. So, as you can see, this role between what we would call church and state was very blurred, and in fact, there really existed no dividing line. The church worked with the king to administer both spiritual and temporal goods of the kingdom, which probably explains why the king would often play an important role in who was appointed bishop with any particular diocese. At the end of the day, secular and church authority were rarely in conflict during this period, which began to set a precedent of church-secular relations for centuries to come. Now, I'm going to give you another sneak preview here. Uh, the relationship between the church and secular rulers would become troubled prior to the Magna Carta, and we will see reflections of this conflict in the Magna Carta itself. Both the kings and the aristocracy, they tended to prefer living in and cultivating rural lands, as opposed to living in the cities at this point, following the migrations into uh, the old Roman Empire. Gradually, the, sh the economy shifted to one heavily dependent on agriculture, while the cities remained centers more for governmental administration. In fact, it was King Clovis that made Paris his capital city in 508 AD. The word Paris just deriving from the, the Gallic uh, Parisii that lived in the area well into the Roman times. But this economic shift away from international trading uh, to a more inward rural economic focus would play an important role in societal and political structures in the future. Uh, specifically, this shift in economics would lead directly to the establishment of feudalism, which would play a strong and important role throughout the Frankish kingdoms. As a matter of fact, it was this tendency of Merovingian kings to distribute plunder and estates to those who provided important military services that would serve as the basis of the medieval feudal system, wherein those close to the king and providing the most service would become land-rich themselves. These vassals, as they would become to be known, would use their extensive holdings to build up their own followers in the same way the king did. Now, over time, this process would multiply and grow into a complex feudal society. We will talk much, much more about feudalism in later episodes. Just know that this is where we see this process really taking off under the Merovingians, who were experts in growing their influence using territory uh, that they would conquer as payment. This process of growth through military success but decentralization through land distribution in exchange for military services came to be very successful for the Merovingian kings 
especially King Clovis. But the Merovingians, or the long-haired kings as they were nicknamed, began to run into problems as the decades and centuries passed. For one, just because territory was conquered did not mean that those who were conquered were all that happy about it. Uh, Pockets of old Germanic tribes such as the Visigoths in the south remained essentially independent but may have had to pay tribute. The Burgundians always remained a thorn in the side of the Franks, and the Britons, who had migrated from the Great Britain island, remained difficult to subdue as well. So ultimately, the Merovingian days, when the Franks could easily conquer more land to distribute to the king's benefactors, came to an end when they were not able to conquer more territory. The fuel tank driving all of this ran out, so to speak. A patchwork of semi-autonomous regions within Francia began to develop, resulting in ever more factions and divisions of territory to resolve disputes. Another problem cropped up for the Merovingians, and that was the uh, management of their own domains became difficult to control when the stewards of those domains, called the mayors of the palace, began to accumulate power of their own since they controlled the royal income and wielded a tremendous amount of influence of their own just simply by the authority the kings had granted them. As these mayors of the palace accumulated wealth of their own over time and passed it on to their heirs, they became equally and eventually more powerful than the kings themselves. Ultimately, this led to the rise of the Carolingian dynasty that replaced the once powerful Merovingians for control of Francia. But that story is going to have to wait for another day. So, we have seen how the Merovingians attempted to administer their lands, but what about the legal mechanisms that were actually in play here? What we know comes from only a few limited number of sources. A main available source are records preserved from monasteries who were very protective of their holdings and legal protections that the Merovingians had given them over the years. One thing we know about the Merovingians, as opposed to what we're going to see with the Anglo-Saxons in the next episode, is that they tended to borrow and adopt many aspects of Roman law. I mentioned that before, but now we're going to get to see some more of the detail. We already discussed that before the migrations, the law and judgment concerning the application of customs of the land came from the things or the assemblies. These customs remained in effect after the migrations, and we discussed some of the types of those legal customary rules that were recorded in the Salic law. But from the records of the monasteries, we can see that royal authority, as it began to take on a more monarchical form that became the standard in the Middle Ages, the kings would begin to issue edicts. These edicts were added to the customs, Many of these were also recorded in Clovis's Salic Laws. This practice of issuing edicts would have been very similar to the Gallo-Romans, uh, familiar to what the Gallo-Romans were used to, who had descended uh, from those who were under imperial rule. But having said that, I want to say something here about these edicts. When I'm talking about edicts, we are not in this context, talking about what we would consider to be modern legislative enactments or statutes or executive orders. 
Such edicts like that were extremely rare. But rather, royal edicts were issued mainly to reaffirm or revise pre-existing custom. There was no body of statutory law as we know it today. And this is important to remember because the concept of monarchy being developed at this time, it was based on relationship between the king and his people, rather than a one-sided, all-powerful dictator giving commands to others, uh, as some in the post-Enlightenment world would have you believe about Christian monarchs in early medieval times in the Middle Ages. Now, we will also see from our discussion on Merovingian administrative practices, uh, the adoption of royal committees to administer justice. The, the alternate mechanism for applying and enforcing royal edicts and customs of the people uh, continue to be used in areas, uh, particularly those still with heavy Roman influence. In other areas, the use of assemblies to render judgments, as was the case before the migrations, remained in effect. But we see an openness or willingness of the Merovingians to start adopting these Roman means of administering law. While not strictly an issue dealing with the law of the land, we also see the Franks adopting the use of the Latin language, a vulgar Latin to be accurate, that was spoken in the Gallo-Roman areas as a holdover from the old Roman days. In doing so, the Franks began to move away from their Germanic language roots, while other Germanic tribes, such as the Anglo-Saxons, maintained their Germanic-based language. This is why what would develop to be Old French over the following centuries is a derivative of Latin, which we would call a Romance language, uh, as opposed to Old English, which was a Germanic language, not subjected to the pressures of that Gallo-Roman Latin heritage. Another feature of Roman practice that the Merovingian Franks adopted was the Charter. The Charter was a legal document that recorded the grant of land or a grant of an immunity. In a world not used to writing anything down, including their laws like we are today, you can imagine how important and valuable these Charters would have been because they offer proof of one's possessions and they extend beyond the lives of those who would have granted the Charter. So again, you can imagine how frustrating it would be to have a king grant you a large estate only to have his son taken away following his father's death. Well, the charter helped prevent that sort of thing from happening. The notion of granting land to another person is fairly easy to uh, comprehend, but what about these immunities? The concept of an immunity was also a holdover from Roman law. An immunity was simply an exemption from a duty, otherwise imposed by the law. A common immunity was a tax immunity, an exemption from having to pay a tax. There were other immunities as well, and monasteries were often recipients of such immunities. For example, members of a religious community were granted immunities from royal officials, such as Akomis, from hearing lawsuits involving members of the monastery or immunities from being required to provide hospitality to the royal entourage, which we talked about earlier, could be extremely costly. So the immunity itself would have been very valuable to the recipient of the immunity. These immunities formed a key part in the relationship between secular and religious authority in Francia. The reason for this is the idea was 
the, the king, the Merovingians, they wanted to ensure God's rights and the ability to preserve proper worship of him. This is fairly straightforward to understand why a kingdom would not want to risk bankrupting and destroying their ministers and churches. But what about those lands and other property in the church's possession that were not strictly used for religious purposes? Agricultural land and animals, for example. Well, this is not quite as straightforward as you can imagine and will become the subject of disputes in the future between secular kings and religious authorities. Slavery was another feature of Roman law that continued beyond the collapse of the empire under the Merovingian rule. But we need to start making some key distinctions here. The Latifundia, which was a large private estate with a large number of slaves, uh, typically housed on the estates during Roman times, did not continue after the collapse of the empire. What we do see are records documenting a number of a uh, sm smaller number of unfree peasants and those who may have been considered slaves under the Merovingians shortly after the collapse of the empire. So there was some residual acceptance of the notion of unfree labor, but it appears to have been a dying institution, even under the Merovingians. We will return to this notion of unfree peasants and serfdom in later episodes. So at this point... We can wrap up this episode on Merovingian law and administration and take away from this episode, I think, is that medieval legal institutions and practices really began to take shape and form under King Clovis and his Merovingian successors. And we saw how these institutions and practices borrowed heavily from both Germanic and Roman influences. And we saw how these once fluid and roaming tribes Germanic tribes began to take root with a land-based economy that shifted that shifted the way authority would be distributed as well. For the Franks, well, they're going to be uh, much more influenced by these Roman practices, traditions, and even their language than what we're going to see with the Anglo-Saxons in the next episode. And eventually, what I want to do is bring these diverse customs and legal traditions that develop in early France and England together after William conquers England. And then this matrix of feudal rights, monarchy, and legal traditions will begin to be challenged, ultimately on the plains of Runnymede, with the signing of the Magna Carta. But that remains for the future. Until then, have a great day. <laughs>